Let's pray as we open the Word of God together. Great God and Father, Lord, we praise You that You have given us Your Word, that You have revealed to us all that we need to know to come to You in faith and repentance, Lord, that You did not leave us lost, but that You loved us enough to send your Son, and to give us your word. And we just rely on the sufficiency of it. And we pray that you would open our hearts and minds to understand it better and to hide it in our heart. Lord, we again pray for our our brother, Cruz. We thank you that he is here to open the Word of God for us, to preach it and teach it, Lord. And we pray again that you bless his efforts and that he will proclaim it boldly. Lord, let us just conform our hearts and minds to you and your will. It is in the great name of Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. I am thankful to be here today. I'm thankful uh, that Pastor Shiflet, Brother Shiflet, reached out and uh, asked if uh, I could fill the pulpit. And I'm thankful for the opportunity to uh, study God's Word and hopefully bring some of what I've been able to learn uh, to you. I've got too many things. I'm trying to set stuff up. Um, Today we will be in the book of Job, chapter 1. And while you're turning there, I will fumble through the pages of my Bible and turn there. And I would ask one more time, if you would go with me to the Lord in prayer. Most gracious and heavenly Father, I ask that you give us hearts that are truly grateful, truly thankful that you have revealed yourself to us through the written word and that we can come to it and understand what you would have us know about you. The relationship between the creator and the creature. Father, we are thankful for the Lord's Day, uh, where your saints may be gathered. Father, I'm truly thankful for your church. You know, your, your, your church Catholic, but also your church here present in Conroe, the saints that have come together, that have offered up these prayers and praise and songs of worship where we've already heard the heart that you would have your saints to have for one another, 
to share in each other's prayers, to share in each other's burdens. Father, I ask that you bless our time together. And I ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, your son. Amen. So, Job, I think many of us are familiar with the story of Job. Um, we know of a man who is wise and wealthy, who has everything taken away from him. Um, many chapters of dialogue throughout, and uh, at the end, um, God answering some things that Job had brought up throughout the book um, and a restoration. Um, you know, what comes to mind when we think of Job is why does God allow suffering? Why do bad things happen to good people? And I want to make a comment here about being familiar with stories. I would think that we all have some favorite stories, stories we tell or like to hear told. I'm a fan of watching some favorite movies over and over again. Some of us enjoy rereading books or maybe watching reruns of old television shows that we grew up with. Even though we know how they end, there is sometimes a comfort in the familiar when we know just how everything is going to turn out. And I say that so I can say that we must be careful about treating the scriptures like reruns. Often when I've had a conversation with someone about the scriptures and mentioned the book of Job, the hearer is quick to respond with something like how good it was for God to restore Job, both his health and his wealth. Again, jumping to the end, Job 42.10 reads, And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. We want to jump to the happy ending. We want to put a nice little bow on things. But I ask you today, let's slow down and take into account what is happening in these verses as Job lived through them. Reading from, chapter, from uh, verse 1. There was a man in the name, <clears throat> there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East." His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Again, although the actual author of the book of Job is unknown, it can be inferred that it cannot be Job. Job would not have known about the, the conversations between the Lord and Satan that appear in upcoming verses. Uh, it was probably an Israelite, since he refers to God by the covenant name Yahweh. And three, he, he must have been a prophet. 
Um, how else would he have been able to know about the secret things of God? In the land of Uz was a man named Job. The land of Uz was outside of the borders of Israel, to the east and to the south, in or near the land of Edom. We know this from Lamentations 4.21. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz. Calvin ties the fact that since Job was from the land of Uz, that would make him most likely an Edomite of the lineage of Esau, and that Job lived in a time when God's church was not yet established. Job could be considered one of God's remnant, outside of the covenant, among the pagans, yet he served and worshipped the one true God. Also of note from Calvin, and I quote, Now we cannot determine when Job lived unless we understand that he belonged to a very ancient time. Some Jews even thought that Moses was the author of the book and had given this picture to the people so that the children who were descended from Abraham's race might know that God had privileged others who were not of that lineage and so that they might be ashamed if they were not walking in innocence in the fear of God. God has always intended that the wicked and unbelievers would be without excuse. And for that reason, he intended that there would always be a few people who would follow what he had made known to the ancient fathers. Such was Job, as scripture tells us, and the present story gives a clear picture of how he served God in innocence and lived among men in complete uprightness. Here in verse 1, we see it stated, Job was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. This is later reinforced in verse 8 when God himself describes Job as blameless and upright. What do these words mean? Blameless can mean whole, complete, morally innocent, having integrity. People will put in their email signatures something like, integrity is doing what's right when no one is looking. But let us remember that God is always looking. Upright, straight, level, loyal, and correct. Two other words we could use here to mean the same thing could be perfect and righteous. But let us understand that this would not mean perfectly righteous. This does not mean sinless. There is no sinless perfection that Job could obtain or earn. Neither can any of us. There is only one who has been and is perfectly righteous and sinless, and that is the God-man, Jesus Christ. But here in this verse, perfect and blameless and upright... Perfect can mean blameless, and upright can mean righteous. Job here can be considered as a genuine believer, and we can see that his faith is counted to him as righteousness. Now, biblically speaking, what type of things do you think Job was able to do that would grant him characteristics listed by God himself, such as blameless and upright, perfect and righteous? Let's look at the next part of this verse it leads us to an answer to this very question. One who feared God and turned away from evil. 
Proverbs 1.7 reads, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Deuteronomy 10.12 reads, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And verse 20, also from Deuteronomy, You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. We are talking about reverence and awe. Reverence for the Holy One of Israel, God the Father who spoke the world into existence. Job's life must have been marked by this reverence, this holy fear. He served and worshipped God both outwardly and inwardly. He believed in a moral lawgiver. Even if he wasn't familiar with the Ten Commandments that were given to Moses on Sinai, he understood the concept of what we would know as the summary of the moral law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. These must be the marks of a man that God would call blameless and upright. The Lord your God does not change, and this moral law is for us today as well. Both the believer and the unbeliever are held accountable. And Job was seen as one who was doing what he could out of respect and out of love for the God that he knew exists. Job feared God and turned away from evil. Again, reading from verse 2. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. This man was the greatest of all the people in the east. Job must have been a good businessman. With this many sheep and camels and oxen and donkeys, he must have been involved with local people in agriculture and trade. I think of how... An industry or a factory plants in a town and the community grows around it. And everyone who lives in the area is somehow connected with people who work in that factory or businesses that depend on those factory workers to come to them for their other needs. Clothes, meals, supplies, restaurants. It seems that Job's collection of cattle and beasts must have played a large role in how the people around him were able to live. And Job must have been a good father. It is plain from the text that Job loved his family and understood his responsibility to pray for them, to consecrate them, to offer sacrifices of burnt offerings to God for them. What does it mean to consecrate, to prepare, to sanctify, to bless, to be set apart, to be regarded as holy? Old Testament priests were consecrated. They were washed and dressed, symbolizing how they could not come to God as they were. They had to be cleaned 
They had to be set apart in order to do God's holy work. Job did not have these rituals as the sons of Aaron would have had. But true worship has always been worship that is from a true heart. And Job must have been a good father. What do we see here in the text? He would consecrate them. He would make sure they were washed. He would make sure they were clean, both physically and spiritually. Job would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings from his flocks. Job would take an animal without spot or blemish according to the number of them all. Job had seven sons and three daughters. Do you think they were probably adults? Do you think they were probably, they probably had wives and husbands and children? Would Job have been concerned for them all? The text only mentions Job's children, but I'm sure that a blameless and upright man would have had a conscience in these matters that would lead him, at least sometimes, to consider the extended family and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. A quote from Preaching the Word commentary by Christopher Ashe. Later in the history of Israel, a burnt offering would be the most expensive form of sacrifice in which the whole sacrificial animal is consumed. It pictures the hot anger of God burning up the animal in the place of the worshiper, whose sins would have made them liable to be burned up in the presence of God. We can imagine Job doing this for them one at a time. This one is for you. And he lights the fire, and the animal is consumed. And the son or daughter watches the Holocaust and thinks, that is what would have happened to me if there had not been a sacrifice. And then the next one, this one is for you, and so on until all the children were covered by sacrifice. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned. Mothers, fathers, what is the example that we see here set by Job? What is the example that we see here that a person who would want to be considered by God as blameless and upright? How should that person express their love and affection for those of whom they have been given charge? Let us consider our expected sacrifice of prayer for those whom we are responsible for. It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. The Hebrew word here used, translated as cursed, actually means to bless. The Hebrew reads, blessed God in their hearts, but the meaning because of the context is translated as cursed. It's, it's flipped uh, again from Calvin, when Job says it is possible that my children have blessed God, let us note that this word is taken to mean to curse, even though it also means to bless, and that is to show greater abhorrence so that we will know what fault there is in not blessing God, in not attributing to him the praise he deserves from us. In fact, that ought to make the hair stand up on our heads, and we ought to shake with horror when there is talk of cursing God, we see now why the expression to bless God was used with the opposite meaning. In summary, the fact is that the text says that Job feared that his children might not have blessed God as they should have, 
and that if they did not bless him, it was as if they had cursed him. What we see here in the, in the text is an example of family worship. This is an example that we should all follow. Let me encourage you that if you are leading your family in worship, then you are doing a thing that is pleasing to God. We see Job here as a priest in his home, leading his children in worship, fearing for their souls, fearing where a life without knowing God may lead. Job rises early and pleads for the salvation of his children. And we should do the same. Let us not just pray for our families. Let us pray with our families. We have the scriptures so that we may know more about our Heavenly Father. Let us read them, and let us read them together with our families in our homes, offering prayers and praise to God. And this spiritual responsibility to our families doesn't stop there. We are to show them the way. We are to lead by example. We are to live godly and holy lives. We can't neglect these duties. We can't just let the church handle it a day or two a week. From the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. How did Job know how to sacrifice? We noted earlier from Calvin how God intended that there would always be a few people who would follow what he had made known to the ancient fathers. What could Job have known about sacrifice through the word of mouth passed down from the ancient fathers? How about the story of Adam and Eve? How about the fall of man that exiled them from the garden and how God made for them garments of skin to cover their shame, a sacrifice to clothe them? Or how Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground and Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions, Genesis 4.4. And Abel's sacrifice was considered as more acceptable, Hebrews 11. God instituted sacrifices from the beginning and before the institutions of the law and the church, God still had a remnant who would have continued in these things that God had commanded. That's a good introduction. The book of Job, reading from verse 6 through 12. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on earth? a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? 
Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. I call this section information that Job does not have. Uh, here early in, the, in this section of the text, we read how Satan says he was going to and fro on the earth. It reminds me of a verse from 1 Peter, which reads, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And I, I, I don't want to use the word coincidental, because it's providential, that Peter is the one to whom Christ speaks in Luke 22, when he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. So we see here the imagery of Satan going to and fro on the earth. And again, we see this similar imagery of Job being the one whom Satan and the Lord are speaking about as if as Satan is going to go forth and tempt Job, touch Job. He will curse you, Satan says. So some other some things I want to mention going through this section of verses. Sons of God. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. One commentary I read put it similar to the president calling his people to him. Let's think of the State of the Union address that just happened. Um, not we, we, have, we have two sides of the political parties, and they don't all agree. They're not all in harmony with the president. But, the, but in, in this situation, the president has called them, and they must be there. Um, and I say that backwards because constitutionally, they are the ones who call the president. But same thing. They're not all. They're not in fellowship with one another. There's genuine disagreement there. But because one is in charge, they must be there. And in this situation, we see the sons of God came, angels, you know, greater than man but lesser than God. And if he calls Satan to be there. As much as he doesn't want to, he is still under the command of God. He is still under God's control. God is sovereign. And again, this is a difficult thing to process. Um, but we'll touch back on that a little bit more later. I don't believe that God offered up Job. Because we see in the text that reads, have you considered my servant Job? And I think of that as... Satan was aware of Job. It, it's his job to go out. He wants to, he wants to get to those whom love God, 
He wants to get to those who are good. And he wants to show God that he could convince Job to curse him to his face. I think of it as when Christ could read the hearts of the Pharisees and he would answer them to what they were thinking um, without them speaking the words out loud. It's as if, number one, in God's decree, we know he knows all things. So when, when God says, have you considered my servant Job, it's, in my mind it's almost as if he knew Satan was there for Job. Similar to when Christ spoke about Simon, that he may sift you like wheat. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Satan is presenting something like Job's in, Job's grabbed onto a prosperity gospel. He thinks that Job is going to continue to worship the Lord for what he has given. Who wouldn't want to bless God when things are good, when we're getting what we want, when we're getting what we need? And he's telling God the only reason he's doing right by you is because you have put this hedge of protection around him that you have caused him to prosper. And God says, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him, do not stretch out your hand. So the other thing that jumps out here is Satan can do nothing. Satan can in no way oppose God except by divine permission. Again, our Lord is sovereign. The next section of verses here, uh, Job, starting in verse 13. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Job loses everything here. Job loses his retirement, his animals his servants, all he owns, all that he has raised up and would go forth for generation, generational wealth here has been taken away. Again, I want us to remember about, to be careful about being familiar with stories 
We know all these things happened to Job, but what do they mean exponentially uh, for the people involved in the time? We think of the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans who came and fell upon them and struck down the servants. These are people groups. These are cultures. These are, for, for years and years, generations of people who were into agriculture and were gathering uh, food, building shelters, loving one another. The point I'm trying to make is that for this time, it's, it's almost as it, sometimes we see in Scripture, we read when the fullness of time had come, these people were brought up for this situation, for this time. I mean, these are people who mothers cared for and nurtured so that they would grow up to be grown men who showed up here on this day and did this evil thing. In the back of our mind, I want us keeping the decrees of God in mind. Um, The servants who were struck down here, there must have been hundreds, if not thousands, of servants for this many beasts. These servants, again, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters, families. We spoke of earlier how when a factory shows up in a town and everything that has to do with business in that town has come because of the factory. And here what we, have, we can think of how when the factory shuts down. There's a, there's a great joblessness. There's disparity. People don't have money anymore. Things shut down. Stores shut down. The town dies. We can drive, make a drive down the road, and we can see cities and towns that have gone through this. So this is a fact. I mean, even though this is Job, this is the book of Job, and we know it's the, the horrible things that happened to Job, there is a mass set of horrible things happening to everyone who is involved the sons and daughters of Job who were taken away. No one wants to think about losing a son or a daughter. And Job lost all ten, all at once. And this has got to be, the the text reads, while he was yet speaking, there came another. While he was yet speaking, there came another. The shock that comes with that, no one can guess what that feels like. And then for it all to be capped off with the loss of his children. Verse 19 tells us, A great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I ask you, who is in control of the weather? If there was still a question about who the sovereign one is. Verse 16 tells us, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And again, that can be considered perhaps lightning. But again, I ask you, who, who's in charge of the weather? Again, we, can, we cannot attribute evil to God. That is not what we see here. But the book of Job is here for this. It's here for it. We began the sermon with, why does God allow suffering? Why do bad things happen to good people? 
let me tell you now, we're not answering that question today. But what we're here to see is that it's not for nothing. The next set of verses reads, starting from verse 20, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. He fell to the ground, and he worshipped. We can't say that's what we would do in, in terrible circumstances like this. We don't, we don't know what we could do. Um, something that came to mind when I read these verses was about, a de- about 10 years ago, I was on a volunteer fire department. And we had air tanks, you know, and you'd, you'd get to a fire and you would be excited. You see the glow in the distance. You're not excited because you want to be there. You're just, you're excited because there's fear, there's anxiety. What's going to go on? What am I going to see? Uh, you get there, you, you strap on this air tank, you get on this air mask. This air tank is supposed to last close to 30 minutes. You know, working, breathing, you got to control your breathing. You got to make yourself calm got to understand what you're fixing to go do and it's supposed to last about 30 minutes nobody wanted to go into a house with me because i'd suck that thing dry in 10 minutes flat easy i was not controlling my breathing i was in shock i was scared to death i'll tell you though with work with going there and getting used to it you know practice i'd i'd go to the shop and fill up those air tanks and I would do things around the, the firehouse. I got to, I could, 11, 11 and a half minutes, good. I mean, <laughs> um, but what they, what, they taught us, what they taught us there was that in a situation of great panic, uh, when, when something tragic happens, you don't rise to the occasion. You know, movies and television will make you think that you rise to the occasion. You know, this great adrenaline rush is going to happen. Everything's going to click. Things are going to make sense, and you're going to do the right things. But that's not what we learned at the fire department. He taught us, they taught us, that you will fall to the most basic part of your training that you are good at. That's what you're going to be able to accomplish, and not much more than that. And I, I tell that story to, to, so that we can point again to what Job did. He fell to the ground, and he worshipped. And the lesson we need to learn here is that if we're not in God's word, if we're not studying and understanding these doctrines, uh, things, again, like we spoke earlier, of the decree of God, of the providence of God. Why do bad things happen to good people? If we don't try to understand those things now, then when tragedy comes, we're not going to fall to the ground and worship. We're going to curse God. 
for the situation that we're in. We're going to do the wrong thing. We're going to make mistakes. Job's story is useful to us. Why do bad things happen to good people? There's other verses of Scripture to go through, Psalms, things to read, but we don't have an answer that that fits in 140 characters. We don't have a mean template, a quick... There's lots of answers that can come to this. Why do bad things happen to good people? But we see the example of Job's suffering, the situation he went through in this book, and it's not a short book. It's 42 chapters, most of it dialogue, of a man dealing with grief. And we know that his friends are there, and they don't always say the the right things. And let's admit it, when we're there for someone else who's going through trouble, we don't always say the right things. So we can't just put ourselves in Job's shoes. We can't just put ourselves in the shoes of, of those who are there to help. But we can consider that bad things happen to good people. In 2 Corinthians, let me turn there, because I do believe I got it marked. In 2 Corinthians, uh, verses, well, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10, I want to read this. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul was given a thorn in the flesh, and the scripture says a messenger of Satan. But God said, my grace is sufficient for you. He as if Paul knows that it was put there, a messenger of Satan, but for God's glory. The NASB says tormented. The ESV says harassed. But either way, it was from a messenger of Satan. Where do we see Christ in, in all of this? Job was a shadow of being a mediator a priest, the high priest. We see shadows of sacrifice. God is here. The Lord speaking through them. The Trinity is here. Jesus is here. Christ himself was tormented by Satan, tempted in the wilderness. And we can't forget it was evil intentions that offered our Lord up for sacrifice. They didn't see it as sacrifice. For the for the unbeliever, situations like this, um, trouble, temptations, not temptations, trials, afflictions, that's the word I'm looking for, can harden them. Why would I want to worship a God who allows something like this to happen. But when we become familiar with things like what we read here in the book of Job for the believer, we can understand that there can be a comfort in there that 
none of these things can happen unless God has decreed them. Again, just thinking about Job and his situation, the things that he went through are for our good. We have it in this book for all of God's people to understand and read and come to terms with. And we can assume that he's in heaven with our Lord and Savior now. And for ten thousands upon ten thousands of years, a goodness will be there. And this was a momentary time of affliction and trial. So when we when we go through these troubles, these trials, we gotta know it's for our good and for God's glory, even if we can't see it. A final reading when I think about our Savior is from Hebrews 4, starting in verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. That's what Job understood when he fell to the ground and worshipped. Naked he had come into the world and naked he would leave. Everything that had come to him in his life was a mercy. And he understood that. And this is why he could be viewed by God as upright and blameless. And we can see characteristics that all Christians should strive for. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we understand that it's, it's, it's foolish to, to want sufferings. That's, that's not what we want to take from this. It's, it's foolish to think that we'll always look to God, look to you when affliction comes to us and say, it's good that I'm afflicted. But we know that we should strive to understand the things of the Lord, the things that you have revealed to us, so that when these hard times do come, that we can think for a moment that one day we will be seated in the heavenly places and that these trials pass and the answers aren't easy. They, they are incredibly difficult. They are more than we can carry. But we have a Savior who can do it perfectly for us and we thank you for that. We ask that you help us to remember these things as we go about our, our weeks and our days ahead. That when that trial comes, that we may remember to worship. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.